since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And you're listening to the Vix Pod. Um, we are here today to discuss William Shakespeare's first, possibly first, Question first marks. on most of the lists of chronological list anyway of William Shakespeare's works uh, his first play Two Gentlemen of Verona mm-hmm. and before we get started with our in-depth analysis we um, we're, we're trying something a little different we're going to do a 30 second synopsis it's Aiden's turn he drew the short straw so Aiden is going to give you his best 30 second synopsis of the Two Gentlemen of Verona Aiden are you ready for this not at all, but we'll give it a shot anyways. For, for long-time listeners, you'll know that Aiden is terrible at remembering names, so this is going to be interesting. Well, and sometimes plot details, so this should be really fun today. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. Aiden has 30 seconds. 30 seconds are on the clock. Aiden, go. So there are these two bros, uh, Proteus and Valentine. They're both from Verona. That's where the title comes from. And uh, Proteus is like, oh, I'm in love with a girl. I don't want to leave. But uh, Valentine's like, I'm going to go check the world. So he goes to Milan. Uh, Valentine does. Proteus stays behind with his love, Julia. Uh, but then Julia's like, eh, I don't know. And then Proteus goes off to Milan as well, uh, where Valentine has fallen in love with another woman named Sylvia. And they're totally doing, oh my god, there's no way that's 30 seconds. This is impossible. <laughs> That's time. <laughs> he wow. got to Milan. That's I got to good. Milan. So, I mean, it's there, I guess. Just finish, finish the Yeah, synopsis. okay. So, basically, uh, there's some love triangles. Uh, Proteus also falls in love with the same woman as Valentine, gets Valentine kicked out of Milan by the Duke of Milan. In order uh, so, so that he can put himself up as the... As the lover for, for Sylvia is her name. And meanwhile, Julia... Has come back from Verona and is there in Milan too, spying dressed on, as a dude, dressed as a dude, spying on Proteus, keeping tabs on him. And uh, wow, yeah, we need to do this like a two-minute uh, synopsis. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, and then eventually everything winds up with uh, all four main characters wind up in a forest, and uh, Proteus tries to rape Sylvia when she's not interested in him, and then Valentine saves the day, and everyone gets married. To the people they were originally in love with. Yeah. It's it's typical Shakespeare. Yeah, wraps up, nice little bow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. The end. Goodbye now. No. Basically, <laughs> that's it. I mean, let's be honest. That's that's the plot. Uh, there's not much more to say about that. Uh, but we will we will have much more to say on uh, all the pertinent details within that that rather simplistic plot. If music be the food of love, play on. So yeah, the two gentlemen of Verona, um, as we said up, up at the top. Um, widely believed to be one of Shakespeare's first plays, mm-hmm. if not the first. It's hard to date the plays. There's no accurate records of when they were written. All that most people have is maybe performance notes when they mm-hmm. were first registered to be performed in London or, or diary um, entries for I saw this play by this guy named Shakespeare. Well they don't say or I heard they, they, 
they don't say I saw the play. They say I heard the play. Yes. I listened to the play. True. I heard the play. Yeah. Because it was much more in, about listening to the language and yeah. hearing the language. But either way. Yeah. So diary entries or um, references to contemporaneous events. Mm-hmm. And and Two Gentlemen of Verona is always listed as very early play. So sometime between 1589 and 1593 is when um, the play is supposed to have been written. Um, and it's kind of a, I mean, it's there. It's it introduces a lot of the themes that Shakespeare later plays with in a mm-hmm. lot of the other plays, Twelfth Night and um, The Taming of the Shrew, you know, with cross-dressing and all kinds yep. of, of subterfuge and, and characters doubling up playing, you know, men and women. Um, but it's very tentative. It's very... Um, I don't want to say immature, but it, it does feel kind of simplistic and amateurish. Mm-hmm. And I think our, the next play we're going to be doing is The Taming of the Shrew, which, um, sorry, Taming of the Shrew doesn't have any. Did I say Taming of the Shrew? Yeah, no, it doesn't have cross-dressing women. But it does right, have it has strong women. Strong female characters, yeah. I was going to get it. Yeah. So, yeah, so the cross-dressing and the strong women, two themes that, that Shakespeare is going to play with. And, yeah, like I said, Taming of the Shrew comes next, and there's much more um, maturity, I feel like, in that play. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that that this is the first play, and it is so amateurish. Yeah, it really does have then, a feel that's. It, I mean, there's just there's very simple structure. Like the plot really is that simple. There's only four characters. The B plot, if there was one, really is maybe a little hints of things about uh, their servants, Lance and Speed, mm. have these little kind of. Uh, they're not even plots. They're just little scenes where their characters are created and expanded upon. Yeah. And they just kind of hang out there and then they're not really connected to anything. Like the plots don't merge or connect very well. There's a bunch of random stuff that just happens. Like uh, when uh, Valentine gets kicked out of Milan, yeah. all of a sudden he runs across some outlaws and they're like, oh, we'll make you our king because you're well read. Like yeah. that makes any fucking you sense. You have the languages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's really kind of bizarre. Just like by any measure really just bad writing generally yeah, yeah. Um, that's not to say all the writing's bad uh, there's some beautiful language yeah and stuff I mean in here. some of the early scenes that I really I liked it when I was reading it I actually enjoyed it in the productions it seems a little funny to watch it but it, I really like the scene early on yeah it's act one scene two where Julia and Lucetta are um, uh, Lucetta brings the letter oh, yeah. to Julia and she like refuses to read it but then she really secretly wants to read it and she spends an inordinate amount of time trying to piece the letter together after she's ripped it up I mean that's kind of it's it's what I love about that is that it just it shows um how Julia's indecisiveness which I think is supposed to stand in for all women's indecisiveness yeah, yeah. but I like the way that it's shown rather than than told yeah you don't have characters comes commenting says, oh, oh julia is so yeah exactly yeah. you've got her actually acting it out so depending on the production um and i've i've seen this now three times we've seen it the we'll talk about the bbc production the 1983 one there's a silent film that we watched and then we saw it live performed yeah. performed live here in edmonton performed by the free will players and in each it's different each time you see it but it's it's fun to read and and it is really interesting that that letters play such an important role in a in a play about um love and language and yeah. you've got all these words written on paper it's yeah. it's kind of fun to see that kind of thing play out definitely what's mine is yours and what is yours is mine so Linz, let's go over kind of your main points what are the things that really stood out at you uh, about this play, you know, watching it, reading it. Um, 
yeah, uh, the language, those characters, any anything really jumps out at you? Well, I mean, at, at its heart, it's a love story. But I mean, we both read the Folger Shakespeare version of yep. the play, and there's a really fascinating essay there. Um, that kind of talks about the difference between romantic love and kind of this filial friendship love between bros kind of thing that was very popular at the time. And it's different from, um, it's not homoerotic love, but Shakespeare tends to play with that a little bit, Mm -hmm. which is where a lot of the the things regarding Shakespeare's own sexuality kind of comes into play. Modern audiences read that, or modern scholars sometimes read that as Shakespeare playing with his own um, or or exploring his own feelings about his own sexuality but um, it is interesting that you have you know Julia in love with Proteus and you have Sylvia in love with Valentine and you have these two men who are so immature in their their um, romantic affections and their their um, their true loyalty is really to each other yeah. more than anything else. But mm-hmm. at the end of the play, the goal is marriage. Yeah. And you they can't marry each other, but they're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't really respond to the romantic love the way that um, that you would expect well, two you, men to do. Exactly. And it's it's an interesting uh, thing. The the essay was really enlightening in that yeah. way because it really helped uh, explain how in Shakespearean times, uh, you know, that kind of bro love was really the epitome of love in a lot mm-hmm. of ways because romantic love is fleeting and it's based on youth and beauty and all these things that, that go well, and, away. And there was no such thing as romantic marriage. Like you didn't marry yeah, for was, love. You married yeah. as a political thing. So yeah, or, that, that yeah, idea. Economic didn't... needs and stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. not the same, right? It's not our, our understanding of love is not what Shakespeare plays with a lot of the time. Right. So he, um, so that, that, that underlying, uh, sense of love between these two men is really supposed to be kind of the moral ground of the the play. Yeah. So all this, but that's not where the majority of the actual play is. The right. majority of the play is the romantic love. And well, that's know, where all the tension is. That's yeah. where the drama lies in, in Proteus, his, his love, his finicky love, I guess, yeah, like goes from Julia, who he is, you know, head over heels for, he yeah. refuses to leave Verona because he can't be parted from his beloved Julia. And the minute he lays eyes on Sylvia, he falls in love with her. I mean, the women are the ones who are indecisive. Uh-uh. Like it's maybe Proteus, it's yeah. totally Proteus, <laughs> yeah. um, which is really fascinating because Proteus, uh, as a, a historical, like a mythological yeah. character, is is that inconstant. Exactly. <laughs> so, and and, it, and yet you have Valentine, who is you the know, lover, of yeah. course, and his love is pure. And true, although he's a complete idiot about it, right? Like <laughs> yes. that's that's what's so fascinating is that yes, Aiden, you're absolutely right. Like the 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 grounding of the play is on this bro love, this brotherly love that these two men have for each other. But all of the plot, everything that drives the plot is surrounding the way that they express the affection and romantic affection for the women in the play, yeah. or don't, as the case yeah, may be. Exactly. And and that's I think that's kind of uh, part of the moral centering of the play. We didn't talk about this very much uh, yet, but this is, you know, Shakespeare's plays are morality tales. All plays back then generally Mm. were, you know, they had a moral to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the good people survived and the bad people died generally. And if it was a a wedding, everybody's happy at the end and everything, right? Everything, all's well that ends well, basically. (laughs) Uh, And... Here, I feel like the romantic, it's exactly getting to the point of the essay from the Folgers uh, Library, which is that um, romantic love is dangerous and it is not something to build 
a long-term relationship almost on because the romantic love is what drives these two great friends apart. Mm. Um, and it's, it's basically, uh, it's a source, not of evil, but of mistrust conflict and conflict. And, exactly. But then why do you suppose that the play still sets that up as the goal in the end? Or is it maybe the goal at the end is to bring Valentine and Proteus back together and their girlfriends just happen to be there, you know, yeah. and it's like, all right, well, let's just go with it. Yeah. And that's kind of how it works out. Right. And well, we'll, it does. We'll yeah. get, to the, end <laughs> we'll get to the end soon. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's really how it kind of works out. Um, I was going to talk about the rape scene, but I, yeah. I see it written in your notes, Aiden. So maybe you want to, uh, is that one of the things that you would take away as a major plot point or a major point of the play? Uh, yeah. Just because it's, it's disturbing. I think I, we haven't read all of Shakespeare's plays. Neither of us have, but it's the only time I can think of where a rape scene or an attempted rape is actually depicted mm. on uh, stage. Maybe it's referenced in another yeah, Well, play? yeah, and there's other things where like, oh, they mentioned that she was raped or, yeah, you know, he was a rapist or something. Yeah, but it all happens off stage. Yeah, it's all off stage. Here this it's one, like right in front of your face. Like he says, I'll force myself on the iron beam uh, or something. I'll force like, you to yield to my desire, yeah. I think is the... Wow, good good yeah. memory, Lens. Uh, so, and it's it's pretty graphic, uh, but the, the rape scene itself is only half the thing because yeah. what comes afterwards is... Valentine. So first of all, it's Proteus trying to rape Sylvia again, yeah. as I mentioned in the in the forest where Valentine is watching from the trees because he has been adopted by well adopted and made king of this band of outlaws yeah. who have also been kicked out of Milan. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so so he, Valentine is watching all of this happen. Yeah, and then he steps in to save Sylvia as a good gentleman would, uh, and then instantly forgives Proteus. Basically, he's like, yeah, it's okay. Literally, <laughs> like like I, it's like fifteen lines or something. Yeah. Proteus, like Valentine, accuses him of of. Being a a, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I don't even think it's the violation of Sylvia that he's upset about. It's more that this is my girl, yeah. this is my woman, yes. and you're moving in on my territory. Yeah. And that's what he takes offense with. And then uh, he gives Proteus a chance to kind of explain himself, and Proteus feels bad. And then Valentine's like, "All right, all the love that I have in Sylvia, I give to thee." I think is yeah, is the line. Yeah, paraphrasing, but he basically you know accepts him back and says oh you're forgiven sylvia doesn't get another line julia no. doesn't have much more to say after this either because she shows she's already there she shows up she's and in then there i think yeah faints because she realizes that valentine is going to give proteus or give sylvia to proteus and then valentine is or um and then julia who's dressed as sebastian <laughs> is going to lose her her beloved yeah so that's when her ruse is, is exposed yeah but yeah, like these these two women who have had great injustice done to them yeah. in their own way are kind Completely of sidelined. Silenced. Yeah, yeah, they, they're they're basically non entities at the end. I mean, mm-hmm. even so, the the play ends with uh, the Duke arriving and him basically saying, "Oh yeah, everything's forgiven. You guys can come back to Milan." And there's also a third suitor. Oh yeah, uh, Thurio, Thurio, who, who is yeah. trying to win Sylvia, but uh, Valentine just says, "Yeah, yeah." At the very end, yeah, when yeah. Valentine challenges him, and so her dad, who hates Valentine, says, "All right, you can marry my daughter." Yeah, because he just, stands up and he's a man. Like it's yeah. it's very odd. Uh, like this is like the ending is very rushed. Like you read and you're like, "Whoa, that all happened yeah. really, really quick." Yeah. Um, you know, it is wrapping up a, a bow on a package that was not very well wrapped, right. I'd say. Uh, so it's like yeah. Aiden's Christmas present. Yeah, yeah. You can tell when I've wrapped them because they're basically <laughs> not. Uh, and the other, another major point for me, at least, was Julia. I thought she was she was kind of a really interesting character. The mm. first cross-dressing uh, heroine. In uh, the very first play, In the very maybe. first play, potentially. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, definitely a, a preview of things to come. Uh, and I thought... 
she was interesting in that her she was the only her, well the, the women are the constant characters yeah uh, once Sylvia's fallen in love with Valentine that's it yeah and uh, Julia never gives up on Proteus yeah in spite of everything in spite of him blatantly you know saying oh Julia who's that I hate her yeah, I yeah. love Sylvia now right yeah. to Julia's face yeah. as Sebastian uh, right up to trying to rape <laughs> Sylvia yeah she's just very constant and I found that that um that strength of character and that that willingness to you know stick it out made her engaging in a sense especially when she was watching uh there's a scene where proteus is serenading sylvia, sylvia yes. and julia has to watch and it kind of breaks her heart yeah. and in the the bbc production that we watched i thought she, that was a really touching scene in right. a lot of ways right. um so that part made her character interesting but then at the end you're just like girl just come out like this guy's terrible you should not be marrying yeah. there's no way he's going to be faithful in the long run like this this is not a good a good match so i i found her character uh juvenile it's a lot like the rest of the play it's yeah. it's kind of a juvenile setup for the future heroines of of Shakespeare what it would did you have a similar kind of take lens or yeah i i mean i i wouldn't i felt more um I was really upset, I think, at the fact that that these women were treated so poorly that yeah. I couldn't, I didn't see her character as fascinating so much as, um, I, I I thought it was fascinating that what we talked about already that the women were the constant ones in a play that really frames them as at least early on with that scene with Julie in the letter um, frames them as the ones who are indecisive and not right. able to put their hearts where they want them to be yeah and you tend to think about men as being logical and rational and and so maybe it's true in matters of the heart you guys just don't know what the hell you're doing and women know better i don't know is shakespeare tapping into some kind of deeper truth here but it's i thought that was the interesting part about julia's character Mm. more than anything we haven't talked about the letters too much yet, but there yeah. is some really interesting stuff happening with the letters that are passed back, back and yeah. forth as well. And and it really brings in that that subplot of Speed and Launce who are... And the dog, Crab, the dog, Crab which yeah. is the only The only dog animal? in Shakespeare. Yeah. 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 Except um, for the bear in Pursuit Oh, yes, bear, of right, course, of course, yeah. yes. Yeah. But... Um, uh, in the Winter's Tale. Is that Winter's Tale? I yes. can never remember which place. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but the... Um, that you have these letters that are being passed back and forth and so much information is being passed by the written word as opposed to love sonnets that are being read out loud. I I just think it's interesting that a writer um, would choose to have... I always find it interesting when writers choose written literary devices in their stories i don't know why like when you have you know characters writing letters in a book or if you have them um or one of the characters is a writer and he's writing a story or something you're just right i just think it's 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 meta in a way it's very cool but um but then there's this interesting thing where where the the um the fool characters these assistants speed and lance treat the letters like currency Mm -hmm. almost like they use them in order to get money and it's not it's it's words that these gentlemen and their gentle women are pouring their hearts out on and and you know it's it's the their romantic fate lies on these pages mm-hmm. and these these fools just come in and they're like well you know the delivery of this letter is worth more than yeah, you know yeah. a, a gold piece or yeah. whatever you or know? the smack you gave me for delivering yeah, that kind right? of thing right like, so I, I thought that was kind of cool like equating you know I don't know if that's um a commentary on 
classes and the way that, you know, because we do have gentlemen, there are gentlemen or they're, yeah. they're working to become gentlemen yeah. anyway. And I want to talk more about that. In a yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, um, and they have the time, the leisure to think about these things, whereas these characters who are just, you know, mere servants, mm-hmm. all they, they can think about, they don't think about love. They don't fall in love. They're worried about the money. They're yeah. worried about how they're going to eat. They worry about, you know, being beat up instead of their dog, taking the licking that the dog should have gotten instead of, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and I thought that And even was, when they do worry about love, it's very practical. Like, uh, was it Speed or Lance? I can't remember who uh, had his, his future wife described to him uh in uh, there was basically he read a letter describing her qualities and her faults yeah and uh they're very very simple there's very little about her character it's like oh well she can sew really well and she knows how to she works really hard but she doesn't have any teeth and you know her breath stinks and he's like well you know what she's perfect for me i'll take her yeah you know and it's it's that simple whereas you know the whole drama about love and relationships for the nobleman is so well and maybe that's why you know you remember that these plays are being performed for most of most of the audience that would be there would be groundlings would yeah. be people who paid a penny to get in they're not wealthy people so yeah. the the comedy of these characters was written for them in language that they would understand so it's relatable mm-hmm. to them i don't think they would find the flowery language that proteus uses to try and woo sylvia or the you know the stuff that um, Sylvia says to Valentine, or the way that Julia reacts to Proteus, that's more aspirational for them. It's not yeah. something that they would they would necessarily yeah, it's not tend something, to try to do in real life. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not the real life. It's it's the it's the imaginary yeah. world of you know the great nobles. And, and but if so you forth. were a dude in the you know munching on your roasted chestnuts, and you hear some guy be like. Yeah, well, she got no teeth, but she can sew. He's like, yeah, she is perfect, <laughs> yeah, actually. I'll Sign me yeah, up, yeah, right? Yeah, because, exactly. you know. That's what he was married to. Absolutely. <laughs> home, She's so, sitting yeah. right next to him. <laughs> yeah. Well, standing right next yeah. to him. But yeah, so yeah, maybe there's something interesting there about that. So you mentioned uh, the sense of nobility, and that it's in the title, to, mm. uh, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Yeah. Verona. Uh, and that is kind of an interesting thing to, to just, again, place into the context. Uh, so nobility... There were certain expectations and uh, it, it was it, being noble was not and being a gentlewoman or a gentleman was not just a matter of birth. It was also a matter of ma- manner of manners, mm-hmm. uh, matter of manners. Uh, and which is a relatively right, new thing. Yes. In this period of time. Yes, I think it, we could trace it back to Watt Tyler and the Peasants Revolt if you really wanted to. But sure. We, we don't have to. OK. Well, I was just going to draw <laughs> the contrast to like, you know, early on it was nobility and uh, knighthood. You know, that yeah. was kind of the aspiration of, of a gentle, gentle person. Uh, and yeah, it's transforming in this time. It's it's a much more urban, you know, uh, the feudal society is starting to show its creaks and, uh, you know, Shakespeare himself, you know, eventually bought the coat of arms well, to become a noble. Well, that's exactly the point. It's that there's this mobility that was never present in English society before. So, yeah. so you, you do have something like that. Exactly. And you couldn't just, it, nobility was no longer just birth. Yeah. It had to be accompanied by virtues. And, you know, all these things are the things that we still kind of consider good, you know, um, treating people well, um, uh, like learning, uh, you know, all the, the, the virtues of, uh, a, oh, a well-rounded a Western, Renaissance yeah, man, exactly. Yeah. Which is brought up early on. One of, um, Proteus's father's, uh, advisors, I guess, says that what, what makes a man like most of the other men that of Proteus's age are off on the continent. They're learning, they're going on adventures, mm-hmm. they're, they're doing all these things. And that's what makes a gentleman. And Proteus is sitting at home pining for a girl, yeah. right? 
which is not gentlemanly behavior. That's yes. not the behavior of a well-rounded Renaissance man. Yeah. So, so there's this push on Proteus's father's part to kind of, you know, send him off, and and this is a journey for him to become a gentleman. So, maybe that's why that final scene and all of the actions that lead up to it are are so. Um, maybe it's so jarring for a modern audience because we expect a play called Two Gentlemen of Verona to contain gentlemen, and these guys are not gentlemen yet. They're well, it, working towards it. Exactly, and, and I think ultimately it's in that final scene where A, Valentine begs, or Proteus begs forgiveness, and mm-hmm. Valentine forgives him. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, forgiveness and understanding when you've been wrong, uh, they're very christian (laughs) virtues like they're the highest christian virtues so i feel like again this is this is the morale this is the moral center of the play coming bringing everything together like they were not gentlemen until proteus asked for forgiveness and valentine forgave him yeah and then all of a sudden they were gentlemen and of course the duke's going to realize that just by talking to them for three seconds and and the women are going to be okay with it because because this is such an important gentlemanly trait we as modern audiences really struggle with that yeah because our society is not i mean we 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 live in a quote-unquote judeo-christian society so the morality does underpin a lot of what we what we understand about how we relate to one another but it certainly was not as present as it was in shakespeare's day and even up until the victorian age right where these morals and and virtues were so present um we just don't understand that we see this this horrible act being perpetrated on poor sylvia and we think oh my god how can you just allow this to happen hashtag me to the shit out of this (laughs) but that's not how it works you can't you can't do that yeah so yeah my note when i was reading it the first time like it feels like it's two bros of verona like these guys are just typical like bros you know they're just they're there hunting down the woman they want they don't care about anything else and they'll stab each other in the back um, and so it's very, you know, it, it just twists your head at the ending. It mm-hmm. just go, sends you for a real ride because you're like, why, why does this happen? But yeah, exactly. But when you, when you really center it on that, when, when you realize that the, that brotherly love or that filial love, mm-hmm. it's not filial love, no, but, the, but the, yeah, the friendship, the friendship that love, yeah. these two men have for one another is the center of the play. And that there's this Christian morality underneath all of that, that makes everything make sense. It still doesn't make it feel okay. I no, still, it really like, doesn't. I really don't like that it. That ending but... is bad, but yeah. Nothing will come of nothing. So I just wanted to talk briefly, Linz, about about that, those intersecting loves, because I think yeah. uh, the the language and the way it, it kind of works out between them is that there is a lot of the blurring of lines between those. Yeah. Um, that was what, again, the essay in the, the Folgers edition uh, really kind of... Uh, encapsulated and helped expand because there is um like there's supposed to be hard distinctions between these kinds of loves you have romantic love for marriage and childbirth and that's kind of it um and then uh friendship love was really about um finding someone who was equivalent to you in every way and that's and that's an important part of it you couldn't they can't be friends with speed and lance because uh they're not equals uh friendship in this time has to be between you know, perfect equals. That that's it's it's kind of getting to uh, the Aristotelian. I was just gonna, gonna say, say <laughs> you read my mind because <laughs> it really is about you know the two uh, things being one really. And, yeah, and that you, you can, have another half out there walking yes. around in the world. A lot of people today read that as soulmates, marriage, marriage romantic, yeah, romantic love. love. Yeah. 
But in Shakespeare's day, when these ideas were really percolating among certain classes of people, it was considered um, platonic love. It was mm-hmm. it was that was the highest form. It of, was absolutely. Of completing oneself, and it only existed for men. Yeah, which was really interesting that that women women and men, as Harry and Sally discussed, could never be friends. Yeah. Um, but, but women also women be also couldn't. Well, it doesn't seem like that exists, or or if it did, Shakespeare didn't write about it, and people didn't really talk about it that much. Which, Maybe because women, you know, in the great chain of being, were not as important as men. Well, and also, and Shakespeare just existing in the time he did, he probably wouldn't have had very many close female friends no. in which to learn, uh, you know, how they express their right. feelings with, between each other. And it was definitely not written about because no. women didn't write about their friendships or their feelings. They well, were not given that avenue. Right? No, women weren't. Didn't even know how to read most of the time (laughs) like like this is women were property of men this was not something women didn't have the the uh agency to develop friendships right exactly so but but i and i just to jump back to my point uh i think what's interesting in the play is that those hard boundaries between those different kinds of loves are are kind of played with a little bit because it's Shakespeare and Shakespeare loves to play. He loves to do puns and wordplay yeah. and stuff. Um, and there's tons of that here, but it's, you know, it starts, you know, it starts just pulling at the the threads of what love means. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, there, there's a bunch of metaphors about it. One love is blind. And then a couple of scenes later, I think it's love has four eyes or something right, like that. Right, right. Like it's contradictory and it, it's kind of saying, well, the word love uh, has a bunch of different meanings and, uh, in typical Shakespearean way, he just kind of makes these associations that I think, uh, in theory, how people at the time were expected to act and behave and believe was in hard distinctions, but he's, he's not comfortable with that. So there are some, like, you could read the relationship between Valentine and Proteus as, uh, homoerotic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the play starts with loving Proteus or something like that. Like right. Valentine's talking to him as loving Proteus, my, yeah. f- my best friend, you know. Love is one of the first words we get to describe Proteus. And it's not just the fact that Proteus is in love with Julia, which is what the conversation's about, but it's also, Proteus, you love me so much. Yes, you know? and it's, I love you too. And I love you too. Like and let's talk about the you know bi- or, um, mythological stories of of deep love, yeah. which, yeah. you know, yeah. it has the, the double meaning of being, you know, the depth of my love for you, but also, you know, deep penetration in there yeah (laughs) (laughs) which you know i mean all of these things are are being played with you're absolutely right in in really interesting ways um that blur those lines um was it to be subtextually homoerotic i don't no, I don't think so. Yeah, probably not. But but, but you can still read it that way, and it, I mean that's just and that's what I'm saying, talking about. It's yeah. just that he's he's pulling at those threads, yeah. and so as a modern reader, we can walk in there and say, oh well, that's Proteus got and Valentine totally did it. But you know, it's probably not in the in the context of the play. But but that's what makes it so interesting to watch some film adaptations or play adaptations of Shakespeare because you could read into that, and you could have a really interesting. Uh, production that does set that up in a way that makes sense because you know you can read into that on the page you can read into that in the text so um maybe that's why Shakespeare is so timeless in Mm -hmm. a way because there's there is a lot of ambiguity if you don't read and if if you don't consider the context of when the plays are written yeah or yeah poor Yorick I knew him, Horatio. I thought 
fellow of infinite jest of most excellent fancy. I think um, just to tack on just a little bit at the end here, um, Shakespeare does pull at these threads a little bit because, as you say, there is that that hard delineation between the two. But maybe there's there's an attempt on the part of the playwright to maybe put bring them together so that they they aren't mm-hmm. as hardly delineated. Yeah, and that might be. Um, Maybe that's a topic for an entire show about yeah, yeah. about love and friendship in in you know the Elizabethan age and uh, and Shakespeare and Shakespeare in yeah. specifically, but um, yeah, no, it's it's that's a really interesting point. So, some of the adaptations. There is only one film adaptation. The BBC version was well, done for TV. That was a TV. Yeah, yeah, TV made for TV movie. The yeah. film version was this nineteen thirty one. Um, silent film. Yes. And, uh, uh, yeah, okay. Chinese yes. silent film. Um, Aiden did a little bit more research on this, so I'm going to pass it over to him so we can talk a bit about you, you that You want to talk about that one first? Okay. I did, yeah. So in Chinese, well, in Mandarin, it's, and I'm going to butcher this, of course, but Yi Jian Mei. See, all that Duolingo paid off there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was it was from 1931, uh, and it was, it's uh it's set in contemporary China, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a pretty faithful adaptation in a lot of ways, um, and it's uh, and it's also pretty good at bringing it up to that modernist day yeah. of the time, like because it's it works out very well with you know instead of being gentlemen, they're uh, military officers, right. and one gets posted to Canton, and uh, the Proteus character stays behind a Wu Julia, the Julia character. Um, and yeah, it's it's uh, it's actually not too terrible. We found mm-hmm. it on YouTube. I'm sure we'll uh, provide a link as well. Um, but it is it is limited by the um, limitations of the play itself. Like yeah. it's not a it's not a great movie to watch, and it's not just because it's silent. Um, oh, and we should mention there are English captions. Yeah, um, and Spanish captions. Well, the one the version we the, fa- the found version was that we found, yeah. yeah had Spanish subtitles added on too. Um, but yeah, so it's it's really just kind of a. Uh, it's it's a fine adaptation, I guess. Some parts are actually better. Like they build up uh, when uh, Valentine, the Valentine character, is sent out, um, and he becomes an outlaw. It makes a lot more sense here because it's kind of like a a warlord kind of time period right. in China, anyways. And bandits have you know a big mystique and and stuff. So they they have more visual language there to work with, and the character they build more. They spend more time building that up as well. Some of the some of the changes they made were a little bit weird, like making the Proteus character and the Sylvia character cousins. Yeah, which didn't really and and the Proteus character is, um, I mean. It's one of those situations where the people, the actors they cast for these roles are meant to look a certain way so that you know that they're good and bad. Yeah. Right? Like the actor who plays Valentine is hella gorgeous. He's really good looking. And the guy that they got to play Proteus is just not attractive at all. He's kind of short, stocky. He looks shifty eyes. Yeah. Yeah, Like he's he's, just like. He's just not. You don't trust him. And you know from looking at him, it's like, oh, well, he's a bad guy. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that's telegraphed very clearly, especially in silent films. It's like snidely whiplash, you know? And uh, so like that's just a um, not present in in the play. Proteus is not meant to be a bad guy on the page. So that was a choice that they made and and it's maybe because it's silent i don't know yeah and it's it's interesting the the one uh major change is in the rape scene actually uh it in that in this version uh 
uh, Julia, no, sorry, no, not Julia. Sylvia takes Proteus out to confirm that Proteus was the one who got Valentine kicked out of Canton slash Milan. Uh, And uh, he basically confesses right away. And then he tries to rape her right then. Mm -hmm. Uh, And instead, Thurio, the the second suitor, uh, or the third suitor, I guess, uh, shows up and kicks Proteus away. And then he also tries to rape Sylvia, right. and then Valentine saves her, um, but then doesn't meet up with her right away. It's it's a little more convoluted, but it's it, so it kind of it shifts. It makes uh, Thurio out to be a bit more of a good guy, and he's actually well, he has more of a more of a role. Yeah, generally, Thurio doesn't really do yeah, much. Yeah, do the much page. at all. He's there for comedy in, in yeah. the original play. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's slightly different that way. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a fine adaptation, I guess, for what it was. I think there's a reason now. <laughs> Nobody else has made a a, yeah. a a film version of this because it's just, it is very juvenile. The story thought, is not that interesting. I thought I read somewhere that it was one of the last plays to be brought back to the stage after the mm. restoration of the monarchy in after the Civil War Yeah. Um, in 1660s or whatever. So it was, I, I think it was well into the 1700s when it was performed again. And maybe that's, maybe there's a reason for that. Yeah. You're right. It's not a very engaging play and yeah. it's not something that lends itself well to um, modern adaptations, probably yeah. because of that rape scene that just, it it's too hard to contextualize that for modern audiences yeah. without, you know, having well, it's heavy bad. footnotes. And, and it, it's, it, I, I mean, no offense, but I I don't think any adaptation. I don't even think in Shakespeare's day, people are like, oh yeah, the Proteus guy's a great guy. At the end of the play, no, I just think not. you can't reclaim his character that easily. Um, and Shakespeare tries to yeah. in that final scene. So I think it's it's always going to be a failure at that. Um, and the other version, the way we know this is because we watched the other version yes, as well, the 1983 BBC version. Which I mean, the B- BBC has is I love watching BBC adaptations because they are so faithful to the original mm-hmm. source material. And I you know, Aiden has we took a Victorian literature class together. It's a little background for, for those of you who care. Yeah. Um, and one of the books that we were forced to read was Jane Eyre, and Aiden hates this book <laughs> entirely yep. too much for <laughs> any normal person. But um, the BBC version of Jane Eyre, I loved it. It's like 50 bazillion hours long, yeah. and it's every single line. Um, and... And I remember watching that with you, Aiden, when we were like 19 and you were just like, why are you making me do this? this? Like, like almost broke up with me over it. Probably not. No, no. Um, So, yeah, the BBC productions and they've done every single one of the the Shakespeare plays. And this was in the 70s through 80s. Like these are not modern. No, they're not. Versions. And yeah. But Two Gentlemen of Verona was done in 1983 by the BBC. And um it looks it. <laughs> yeah, it's very 80s. It's yeah. very 80s. It's it's a weird time period. Everything that was made in the 70s or 80s, through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I guess, they didn't bother to try getting the hair right or, like, the makeup yeah. right. Like, there's so much feathered hairstyles <laughs> that it's yeah. just so weird. But there is this this funny attempt at making it look like a sunny Mediterranean climate. Even though it's know? on a soundstage in Bristol or something. Yeah, you, like know? you can tell. Well, no, it was filmed in London. I'm sure. But, but it's, uh, it's very bright and cheery. But then there are some odd choices to have these little cherubs running around, yeah. you know, at various points that are well, just... It, 
because the BBC productions generally, I haven't, we haven't watched all of them, but the couple I've glanced at, they are very much staged. Yes. Like they're, they're stage presentations yeah. that are filmed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, there's a lot of long shots. Like it's, it's not like there's a lot of cuts or, or fancy. No, it's not cinematic. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's somebody a, exactly. put it on stage and somebody just happened to be filming it with a camera. And so you notice when they do odd things like cut to the cherubs dancing and looking at the camera and stuff. And yeah. it's, it's very kind of jarring because otherwise you're in the flow of it as a, yeah. as a stage play and, yeah. and it works well that way um but yeah when when it tries to be cinematic it kind of jars a little bit yeah but uh yeah so redeeming proteus's character in this version didn't really work work. no and that was really um it was interesting to watch because it's the first time we'd seen this production done since well i don't even remember when we saw it performed on stage and i don't remember um, I, I maybe I maybe I fell asleep. I don't remember this play watching it really. No, well, and I don't or remember at least the, not the I end. Remember, yeah, I don't remember the ending. I think they might have changed the ending to be honest. Maybe it, because this, I think they put it on four or five years ago. So I mean, it was already it wasn't a Me Too era, but it was you know. Uh, we're all I don't woke. Think you could, well, we're more woke than we. We're, get, we're getting more woke all the time, right? <laughs> and that's the thing. I I think anybody who reads this play in the 21st century, honestly, is like, how am I gonna? Tr- possibly try and uh, reclaim Proteus' yeah. character and I don't think you can so they might have softened it and been like they might have taken out the explicit rape scene and just right. had him be oh I love you so much right. Sylvia or something and that's when Valentine Maybe. jumps in I don't know but um, yeah yeah this one was definitely hard to watch that way and I did like the Julia the actress who played Julia yes uh, Tessa Peak Jones yeah um, yeah, I she thought did she a was really job. good and, yeah. um, and, and I liked Sylvia the actress who played Sylvia as well yep but uh, the the parts with the servants with Lonson yeah. and Speed were really funny, yeah. and I really like the way they staged the conversation that um, Valentine has with his servant because around the letter around the letter <laughs> when so it's it's actually a really funny scene because Sylvia has asked Valentine to write a letter to her lover, and he writes it and gives it to her and she reads it and then gives it back to him and he thinks he's done a bad job at the letter but really she's given her letter to, to her, her lover, lover yeah. or to the one she loves right mm. and so and he doesn't get it and that's one more instance of the men being just total doorknobs <laughs> in this play um and and the scene where, where the the fool gets it and the gentleman in in waiting doesn't is quite funny yeah. especially because um, he's played by like a 14 year old kid so I really like that they that they chose to do that yeah plus there's a really cute dog yeah yeah crab is, is adorable Crab's is cute all the time I don't remember was there a, a dog in the the Chinese and a spray of plum blossoms no I don't think so that's disappointing that is disappointing but they were horses there were horses there were lots of there horses. were lots of horses so that's good have it be coward so now we're going to uh, open a brand new segment on the Bix pod uh, called marriage counseling, for lack of a better term. Uh, it is where Lindsay and I will take opposing viewpoints on a particular aspect of the play. And uh, one of us will be right and one of us will be wrong. And before you get started, you will be wrong, Lindsay. I will be right. I'm always right. Uh, this week, we're going to uh, take a, an analysis. We're going to dive into one specific piece of the play uh, that I think we just naturally a little bit disagreed about, um, and we're going to expand on that. So it is uh, kind of the key phrase, the key uh, sentence that really screws up a lot of people when they're in the play. It's Valentine's uh, response after Proteus has tried to rape Sylvia. Act five. Scene four, I think. Uh, and it's, it's basically the line. So it is as follows. By penitence, the eternal's wrath's 
by penitence the eternal's wrath's appeased, and that my love may appear plain and free, all that was mine in Sylvia I give thee. So Lindsay, why don't you start off? You tell me what you think that means, and I'll tell you how you're wrong. <laughs> I love that you set me up for failure, so <laughs> just right from the get-go. That's what marriage is all about. Um, so... What what struck me about this line, and I was kind of prepped for this because I had read a little bit about this line before I read the play, and and so I was waiting for it. And when I got to it, I couldn't help but but read this as though he was literally giving Sylvia to Proteus, and and I just I, maybe it's because of the fact that women were considered possessions. This mm-hmm. was not something that that would have been questioned in Shakespeare's time that you could just give over your your a woman to another person because they it was an exchange of property it was like exchanging the letters right there was nothing to it and the fact that um that these men had their friendship was elevated above all else and the women that they loved were just mere property i had no problem understanding this as a literal here take my girl you can have her so you think he literally gave her away Yep, I think okay. I think that he was he was if not saying like he didn't pick her up and like you know drop her at at Proteus's feet, but he's basically saying I give you my blessing, like yeah. I'm relinquishing all the love that I had for Sylvia. Mm-hmm. I give. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you can go ahead and rape her now, kind of thing. Well, not rape. <laughs> I'm saying here, take her. Like you can have her. Yeah, I don't yeah, love yeah, her anymore. Yeah. I love you so much, Proteus, that I'm going to give you the thing that I love more than anything. Which would be you, but is is in female form. Here you go, yeah, Sylvia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I kind of could see that too if I didn't actually read the thing. Because it's very, very clear that, you know, the line is very explicit. That my love may appear plain and free. All that was mine in Sylvia, I give thee. It is the love that he's talking about. All the love he has in Sylvia, he's going to give to uh, Proteus at this point. Because... And that, and that just, it makes sense in the fact that he's forgiving him. So he's saying, don't worry. I, I love you, man. I love you, man. This is the end of, I love you, man. All over (laughs) again. You know, don't worry about the girl. You know, I love you. All my love I have for her. Yeah. I got tons of love for her. Obviously I'm going to, you know, I was going to kill you because you were trying to rape her, but instead I've given all that love to you. I I feel like it, I feel like the, the, a, the rest of the play doesn't make sense if he's literally giving her away because, uh, there's obviously, Two marriages going on right after this. Julia uh, comes in and reveals herself. Reveals herself, and they all wind up happy together, which wouldn't happen if Sylvia was also marrying Proteus. Like Proteus can't have two wives at the end of the play. So obviously, he's not actually giving away uh, Sylvia. No, but the fact that that Julia, as Sebastian, faints, and then Proteus realizes that he actually still loves Julia changes that dynamic and then he's like you know what it's fine i get here you stick with yeah i'm gonna stick with with my original love because i I think if you're gonna give all of your love to somebody else anyway you might as well just give the thing that you used to love like it's there's just no there's uh, there's no sense in that if i were sylvia and i heard somebody say you know i love her a lot but i'm transferring all of my love from her to you, I'd be like, "All right, bye." Like, yeah, but she doesn't. She sticks I understand around. that, but but it's still like it. It still means that there's no, he he doesn't love Sylvia at all. Yeah, I mean, so I can, I, whether he's giving his love or he's giving her away, he still doesn't love her. Yeah, but 
then he marries her at the end anyways. Like, I just, I don't know. I, I get the sense it's more of like, it's more of like a, a peace offering more than it is an actual thing. And that's why the the word love is so important to it. It's about the love, not the physical person uh, yeah, as no, property, you know? Like, I feel like that's that's kind of where it comes across. But then why, you brought up a good point. Why in the world do they get married anyway? Why even yeah. go through well, with the And marriages? this is why it's so terrible of a play because Sylvia never gets another line. We never find out what her interpretation of this whole oh, thing is. it doesn't matter. Women are property. They don't, they well, don't exactly. matter. Exactly, and that's, that's the Even though she, her father's a duke, so she's, you know, royalty. She's, she's well, a far higher we, station We didn't even get to that point. Valentine. That the duke is also the emperor because possibly he was thinking oh, of Charles V. There's so there's many so many. things that we could talk about. You know, when, when we get to the Shakespeare authorship question, we're going to have a lot to talk about. The fact that, play, that yeah. Shakespeare writes that you could sail from Verona to Milan. They're both inland. They're both yeah. inland. There's no ports there's a in road either city. Right between the two of them. Yeah, like in, but we'll get to that. Okay. The the, right. the point is that there's this this ending that is just very not I think we can agree on that. Yeah, it's it's bad ending. But I just, I, I can't buy this. I, I had this written down because I thought it was very clever. Now that I'm reading it, it's probably not. But I feel like that interpretation of he's literally giving her away is like the NRA interpretation of the Second Amendment. It's like you completely missed the preamble about the militia slash love. And you're just like, oh, the right to bear arms are not. We are definitely going to need marriage counseling because you just compared me to the NRA. <laughs> yeah, well, you're well organized. Oh, my God. <laughs> this podcast is over. I tend to agree partly with you. This is not a very good bickering <laughs> section. This is this is the problem. We, we agree because too much, as yeah. as you know, if you read the lines, you're right. Like there is there is I, I see the merit in what you're saying. But I think no, if I, you if you read between the lines no, don't agree with me. Okay, I'm not going, going to make yeah, this, you suck. What are you talking this, about? This is gonna make this bickering thing just not <laughs> no. work. Um, but the uh, the idea that that at the end of the day it's the love between um, Proteus and Valentine that is paramount and the love that either of them had for Sylvia or that Proteus had for Julia is just secondary Mm -hmm. um really takes the the steam the wind out of the sails of this double marriage at the end which is supposed to characterize the ending of a comedy you have this wonderful marriage but but there's just nothing left there that you know it should be Proteus and Valentine getting married as far as I'm concerned those are the ones two bros of Rome but um, because the 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 romantic love of the play is so much, it's so relegated to second class status that it's all it's it's almost not even necessary to have this this marriage at the end anyway. Yeah. Because, like I said, whether you've given literally given Sylvia away, or you're just transferring your love from Sylvia to Proteus, Valentine is still saying. Yeah. Like, why did he end Bros up before going, hose. That's what he said. Bros before hose. Yeah. But why did he even marry her at the end anyway? Uh, I, and I why did Proteus go back to Julia? I, it, maybe it comes down to the idea that, that marriage was still something that gave you some kind of social, uh, well, you know. And getting back to it, it's what gentlemen did. They exactly. married gentle women yeah. and had gentle babies. So as they, <laughs> you know, that's a great way to, way to end it. We should just leave it there. And I, that's the that's the way that the the play I think is really setting you up to to understand these two gentlemen. They're becoming gentlemen. They reach the end of their journey through this path of forgiveness, mm-hmm. and then the marriages at the end will solidify their status. And that's it. They are now gentlemen. So 
yay, title complete, I guess. I guess. Yeah. Did you like the play? Um, there was some nice language. I'll That's give it that. There was know. some nice wordplay. There were a few okay scenes. Um, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's probably there. There's some really beautiful language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like Julia, but I also didn't. So no, no, I didn't like the play very much, Lindsay. Sorry. What about you? Yeah, the the beautiful language. What light is light if Sylvia be not by, and yeah. and all that stuff that Valentine says, or the way that um, the lovers part when Julia and Proteus leave one another, and they talk about you know the cloudy Dave, you know, absconding with the sun because you're leaving me. Yeah. I mean, there it is. It is very flowery, romantic language. I mean, remember Shakespeare was a poet first. Mm-hmm. He that was his main bread and butter was writing these romantic sonnets to the the. We don't know. Well, yeah, Henry Ridesley <laughs> or the Dark Lady. You know, these were these were the the subjects of his romantic sonnets, and uh, and this is perfect language for that. It's it's romantic and to subvert that at the end by having this be all about um, friendship as opposed to romantic love. It's a strange choice. Maybe it's only strange because as a modern reader, I'm not getting the full effect. If I had a TARDIS. <laughs> yeah, but you'd still be you. You wouldn't have all the yeah, social conditioning true. of a... But I could talk Elizabethan. to people. <laughs> sure. I could I could talk to people and figure out what was going on. There's going to be a lot of TARDIS talk in this podcast, I think. Probably. And if I actually did have a TARDIS, they'd burn me as a witch. You know that, right? Yeah, you'd definitely need a couple sonic screwdrivers to get out of the jams yeah. you would find yourself in. Anyway. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. Uh, for... Future reference for any of you who are interested in reading it, um, the the essay that's featured in the Folger Shakespeare edition of The Two Gentlemen of Verona is called The Two Gentlemen of Verona, A Modern Perspective by Jeffrey Mastin. We'll put a link to, uh, or th- we'll write it out in, in the description, and, um, and if we can find a link, um, we'll post that up there as well. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it it's very, definitely very worth good reading. Resource. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that concludes our episode about The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Um, Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Lindsay, for being an excellent oh, well, discussion partner. Thank you, Aiden, for you know allowing me to speak, considering I'm your property, right? Oh man, if, the, if only it were true, <laughs> that would suck. I mean, of course, that would totally suck for everybody, yes. including the men. Good, good men, <laughs> good men. Uh, the next play we're going to be discussing is *The Taming of the Shrew*, yes. which I think we'll have lots to talk about. It's one of my favorite plays. That Shakespeare yes, wrote. oddly, because it's so brutal towards the main character. But, but yeah. I think there's some interesting stuff to talk about there. Some, yeah. There's some feminist slants that can definitely be read into it, and yeah. I enjoy that very much. So I am looking forward to talking about that with you. Um, but in the meantime, we will make our exeunt. Which means exit, right? Yes, in, in the, the language of Shakespeare, okay. exeunt means all exit. Okay. Bye! You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.